Tag haben wir noch ein bisschen von Narrativ mit Bauerbosch. Hier die Episode ist etwas klein bisschen anders. Ich war vernannt bei der Buchlaunch von Adria Basson und Peter de Toy. Sie Buch mit dem Namen Enemy of the People. Und es geht über Jacob Zuma, aber es geht über wie die afgelopen tien jaar afgespeeld het, en hoe uh, state capture nie oor nagebeer het, maar pretty much van die begin af, van way back af, het Zuma al begin die goed in plek stel, dat, die, dat het nou kan wees, die chaos wat het is vandag, soos ons dat ken. Um, dit was een awesome aand gewees, dit is die eerste keer wat ek een live recording doen, ek het die microfoon um, geplakt in die speaker, sneaky sneaky, Gorilla style, en um, ja, ek kon het die beheer erg nie, en het het baie gedistort, so uh, jy kan die interview definitief luister, en man het geduld dat het klein beetje distort, um, ek het baie geleer hier uit, so volgende keer sal ek het beter doen, maar check it out, het was een great aand, dat jy die context het waar die boek gaan, en um, ek sal die boek aanbeveel, ek het so uh, groot stuk begin lees, en dit is rarig, amazing en interessant om te sien hoe hierdie gebeur het, so um, dit is een great interview en die einde praat hulle oor wat om nou te doen en om nie moedeloos te raak nie en welke mens betrokken raak om, om een verskil te maak so ja, hier is het nou Arjun Bassan, editor of News24 and Peter Dottoy editor-in-chief of HuffPost. I'm not going to talk about their past. They have been journalists from the start. If we were still in ink journalism, then they were to have black all over their hands from the ink. So two superstars of the journalist world who produced a fantastic book. Uh, I don't know if Reddy needs much introduction, but I would be in trouble for her if I didn't. So Reddy, I'm going to first say that she is the author of Quasi. And if you don't have a copy of that, you really should buy one immediately, as soon as you've bought a copy of Enemy of the People. So, in fact, this is a real moment because we have Enemy of the People number one, Crazy number two, in the store tonight. So that's just wonderful. But to be honest, I'm not going to give you a long rundown. Reedy is a star broadcaster. She is an author. She is a prize-winning author with her first book, um, Endings and Beginnings. And um, at her young age, she has many more adventures and surprises in store for us. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to the three of them, and they will be in conversation about Enemy of the People. Jeremy meant by I have lots in store was that I should be doing another book because that's what publishers do. They put you under pressure and they don't give you a lot. Hey. And as you can see, I have the original manuscript. So unedited, nothing is hidden. We're going to have a frank conversation. So I think that it is important to just name the elephant in the room. Because everywhere I go, I'm being asked, is it any different from um, what is it, my president, the president's keepers. I get asked that. How many of you have wondered that? Show of hands. Okay. It is very different, but it deals with the same malaise and cancer that we are facing as a society. And that is the beauty of words and books, that we can all deal with the same subject, but approach it from different angles. So I'm just trying to say, if you are busy with Jacques Poe's book, and you should be, it is a very important contribution to our contemporary history, our politics, where we are as a nation, and the kind of reflections we ought to be making about the kind of country that we want. So if you are reading Jacques Paul's book, it would not be a waste of your time to also spend some time buying and reading 
enemy of the people. So let's get started. And I will start with that theme of where they differ because there's no use pretending um, you know, that that is not something that's uppermost in people's minds. I find it very interesting that when you start the book, you are not just putting the lens on Jacob Zuma as an individual and his actions, but you are drawing us into the ANC itself. And this is a very important strategy, I think, because we have the elective conference coming up in December, and if Zuma goes and his candidate doesn't prevail, we're probably going to be reminded that, oh, we got rid of Zuma, so we've earned your trust again. And I think that it is important that you start with locating the party itself and, put, and making it central to the rot that we are talking about. Talk, talk to me about that strategy. Why was it important to locate the AMC and not divorce the AMC from um, its leader? Look, really, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming tonight. And I'm glad you introduced this issue because the only reason we are number one is that because they're out of print of Jock's book. So let's not pretend. You know, if we stand for the truth, let's stand for it fully. Um, and it's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book and a very important book. And I'm very glad, glad Jock wrote it. And uh, there are definitely touch points. But I think the big difference, as you said, is that we are working journalists, we are there every day. And for me and Peter, it was important to stand back from the plethora of breaking news scoops every day and try and chronologize the past 10 years. Why starting with the ANC? Because I do think the ANC must take responsibility for Jacob Zuma. The ANC cannot disown Jacob Zuma. Uh, even Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa cannot disown Jacob Zuma for who he deputized for the past five years. Interestingly, Peter and I had the same debate this afternoon and before uh, coming to the launch. Uh, to say, you know, why could the ANC never get rid of this man, you know? There were eventually brave people like uh, Derek Hanekom um, and others who stood up in the ANC-NEC and said, we need to get rid of Zuma. They failed. Um, the NEC, ANC top six failed for many years to stand up to him. And last night, uh, we were interviewing uh, Zuelim Keys, the ANC Treasurer General, who's running for ANC President in December. And even again, he was trying to defend why they didn't get rid of Zuma after the Nkandla Constitutional Court judgment. So the book starts in Polokwane. It looks at why Jacob Zuma became President of the ANC and subsequently of South Africa and why he stayed in power for 10 years. Okay, something else that stands out for me is that there's been a lot of breaking of ranks with Jacob Zuma. And I also held the view that many people were breaking ranks when it was safe to do so. I think apart from Zuelin Zimavavi and just a few others, generally everybody is kind of starting to speak now when it is safe to do so. But in the book, which I think is one of um, you know, the, the, the attributes that make it unique, and interesting is that you start, you talk about how very early on, after Pulukwani, there was a breaking of ranks of some sort. From the ANC Youth League talking about nationalizing the mines to um, one uh, union, I can't remember now, marching to, um, uh, to the reserve, to, to NUMSA, NUMSA, yes. In a way, that's kind of started to demonstrate that the alliance, at least ideologically, they were fractured even before Pulukwani happened. Tell me why that's important. I think it's important because we, the, the, the way that Jacob Zuma came into power was he was, a, he was the touchstone around which a lot of factions, individuals, and organizations coalesced um, to try and achieve 
a an end when you know it, it the, 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 the issue started with economic policy that's actually where the big conflict started the, the 1996 class project so we're going back way before a term like state capture became vogue the, the whole Jacob Zuma phenomenon started before 2007 before he became president so you had Kasati you had the SACP you had individuals that the coalition of the wounded that coalesced around the president um, and very early on uh, President Jacob Zuma decided to 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 take power to himself, to take to 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 unify power in him as a person, um, and 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 that led to a lot of conflict with Kusatu and the SACP. And the first big break, and we write about it in the book, and and, and I'm sure people like Mpumi, who's here as well, Kabela can rem remember it very well, was when Zuelen Zima Vavi at Kusatu House one morning spoke about the vulture state, about his fears, and that was early 2010, fears about the vulture state that's starting to emerge, that's starting to, 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 to uh, take and attack uh, government resources, and that was the first big break. And after that, he neutered the ANC Youth League, he neutered the SACP, he neutered Kusatu. These organizations today are pretty much a shadow of what it was in 2009, 2010. Um, and the power in the presidency, the power in the ANC presidency, he unified it in himself as a person. I must say, I mean, even as somebody who's been 20 years in the media with a daily talk show for about uh, 16 years, I also have to kick myself and take my mind back because I can't figure out that moment, that moment when it happened. And I think that's what this book helps us to revisit, to just think about where, where were we that moment when the state was captured? Where were we when the first signs started manifesting itself? And I haven't figured that out completely, precisely because I still can't get over how quickly it was done. Is that a wrong summation or, 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 or you know, observation? Was it that quick? And we'll talk about the different case studies that led us to that. I'm, I'm just fascinated by how anybody, any faction, any group can just manage to do this so quickly, so efficiently. Look, uh, really, let, let me start by putting another elephant on the table and kind of try and cut it open. State capture cut isn't new. Yeah, bit by bit. <laughs> Apparently that's how you eat an elephant. But state capture didn't start with the ANC or with Jacob Zuma or with 1994. State capture has been a feature of South African politics forever. Um, it was just as rife under the National Party in these lovely books written on that topic, which people should really read. Henny van Furen? Especially Henny van Furen's book. So I just wanted to say that up front. Secondly, um, state capture doesn't happen overnight. So what we try to do with the book is trace back how did this start in 2007. Now what's interesting, if you look at the timeline of when Duduzani Zuma, who's really the president's favorite son and who I and we argue in this book um, is the, the Zuma family's uh, representative on the Zupta Inc. board, if you want to. Um, he started joining the Gupta company shortly after Polokwane. And that gives us a clue. This is where the Guptas were so conniving and very clever and strategic to immediately turn their, sets, their sites away from Esopahat and Tabumbuki, who they were courting, and went immediately for the Zuma children. Duduzane Zuma and Duduzili Zuma actually joined the board of Sahara Computers shortly after Polokwane. And this gives you an idea of the project that started right then. This thing goes through to Jacob Zuma in government as the president from 2009. 
appointing checkered people, people with with really um, unsavory paths into critical positions. We also make the case in the book that Zuma was very careful not to let anyone become too powerful in their positions, especially in criminal justice, because ultimately he wanted to capture that sector and make sure that only the people who he chooses to go to prison and get investigated. That's why we saw the neutralization of organizations like the Hawks, like the NPA, like the intelligence agencies. We'd had a plethora of leaders throughout these terms. Nobody was allowed to get their feet and their hands in. And when they did, people like Anwar Dramat and Colisin Kasana at the, at the um, NPA, uh, people like Gibson Jenge at Intelligence, they were kicked out and replaced with others. That opened up the state, sorry, just to finalize, that opened up the state and also through the appointment of board members onto the SOEs. Because what we do in this book, and I really grapple with this issue because I do think the the state capture must be unpacked for South Africans to understand what we mean. And we try in this book, we take a few examples, like with Transnet, like with ESCOM, like with the NAU, with SAA, the Jet Airways example, where literally from the appointment of board members, uh, from the appointment of ministers, like Malusi Gigaba by Juma as public enterprises minister, to Malusi Gigaba's appointment of board members at Transnet, ultimately led to corruption, to transactions of money flowing to Dubai. And I think that's important to understand how Zuma opened up the state for state capture to ultimately happen by the Guptas and his son. I must say, I hardly ever disagree with you, but I'm going to challenge you on, on that. I think there is no debate that state capture is historic. And it would be um, quite tragic if there's anyone in this room who doesn't reflect on how apartheid was financed. It was through state capture. There is no debate about that. And it doesn't make it any less significant than this one. There's no competition between which one is worse. There's no competition. It's just a continuum. I guess the point that I'm making is that apartheid state capture was to enrich the pockets of people. Make no mistake. Money was taken offshore. All the stuff that you're reading is because we do have an open society. It was happening uh, in those days. There was just too much secrecy. But it was also in aid of an ideology and over time uh, empowering Afrikaners, uh, using state agencies to further a certain ideology. So one would say that state capture through that prism unfolded for as long as apartheid was alive. But with the Zuma presidency, I think the time and the period is significant that you had SARS, which was a credible and thriving institution, and you blink and it no longer is. You had ESCOM, it had problems, there was load shedding and all of that, but right now we're learning that they only have enough money to pay salaries right up until um, the end of the year. You had Peter Matlara, you write towards the end about Claudio Mutsaneng. I worked at the SABC during Peter Matlara, Matlara's time. I remember covering the SABC and there was a profit. This was 2003, 2004. So I, I don't want to diminish the time factor and that in a decade, a state can descend to that extent. And the reason I'm emphasizing that and departing from the apartheid ongoing one is because I'm trying to get us to a conversation where we reflect on how quick it is to break a state and the years that it would take to rebuild. I wonder if that makes sense. It, it certainly does, and, and let's let's go to uh, former Minister of Finance Praveen Gordon's words uh, in the beginning of the year in February before the budget vote. 
uh, at a press conference, he said, it takes many, many years to build up an institution, to build up the integrity of an institution, and it's very easy to break that integrity, uh, break the institution and, and to crash the integrity of that institution. And that's what happened with the South African Revenue Service. That's what's happening at, the, at, at National Treasury. We're seeing this week, we saw the, the resignation of Michael Sachs, who for many years has been in charge of, of the budget office. So there's, there's been an erosion of uh, institutional knowledge, of institutional expertise, over a, a number of years, but the, the pace has certainly picked up the last couple of years. Um, in hindsight, hindsight's always a wonderful thing to have, but in hindsight, um, we, 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 we would have judged President Jacob Zuma in 2009 much differently than we do now. Jacob Zuma started out in 2009 with a lot of goodwill, actually, if you cast your mind back. People said, you know, he's not Thabo Mbeki. I don't um, agree. He, he connects with people. Um, let's, let's see what he does. Um, President Jacob Zuma worked with a very long plan. Um, he, he did not, we, we thought President Jacob Zuma will work in within the parameters of a normal constitutional democracy. We thought, you know, this guy might probably be contained by the legislature or the judiciary or the executive authority or even the ANC. That did not happen. And, and the, the, the erosion of institutions, the erosion of, of expertise, the erosion of government, the erosion of, of trust in government, that's accelerated to a, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a factor of 10 in the last couple of years. If you look at what's happened in SARS, and we write about SARS in the book, I mean, and, and there's a lot of, you know, they, SARS has been written about before the book Rogue, which is here as well, which is, which is the definitive account of SARS. But SARS is an institution that we used to be very proud of. It's an institution that, you know, tax, paying tax has never been sexy. You know, no one likes paying tax. But there was a kind of a, an honor in paying tax for many years. Pravin Gordon, when he was commissioner of SARS, um, um, he, he made it, he made it a, a national duty to pay tax. People did want to pay it. What are we seeing now? There's a 50.1 billion rand shortfall. Um, and economists are telling us only 18 billion rand of that can be attributed to, 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 to an economy that's struggling. The rest is SARS that's struggling to, to, to collect tax. So, so yes, there's been an erosion. It's accelerated the last couple of years. Um, but also in the book, really, it can be turned around. Okay. All right, so I need to make a confession because as I was reading, you know, I made certain notes and themes and all of that. So I've written something here which I can't read. I don't recognize what this word is. So I'm going to just spell it. It, it says ANC. It looks like facts, but it also looks like F-U-C-K-S. So I don't know what I've written there. It looks like the letter. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you see it? Yeah. F-U-C-K-S. I don't know what I was thinking, but maybe I should just introduce a new theme uh, to our conversation. You, you, you touch on this, and I think to go back to where I started, and we're not comparing two books. I'm just trying to make a point that each book is unique and will offer you a greater understanding and moments of reflection about the state of the nation. What you have brought into the book, which is something that, you know, I've never ever thought, I've never thought about it as deeply as you've presented in the book. You talk about um, Zuma's masterful understanding of the ANC. And I suspect that maybe for middle class South Africa, all of us here, We've had conversations with our relatives and friends about how did he do it? You just explained the weakening of institutions. But let's talk about the ANC, taking us back to our first theme, about his masterful, that's how you've crafted it, his masterful understanding of the ANC and how you think he's been able 
to use that to bring the country to what I think is the brink. Really, I immediately thought back to Mang Kheung in 2012, and I think you were there. Yeah. And I remember there was a moment when Julius Malema had just been kicked out of the ANC. Um, Julius Floyd, all the old ANC Youth League members were campaigning for Halema Motlante to become ANC president in Bloemfontein. And it wasn't the type of campaign we saw this time, anti-Zuma, it wasn't that size, but it was still sizable. And I wondered, going into Bloemfontein or the Manghong Conference, if there's going to be that replacement sign and the songs at the opening plenary. And Jacob Zuma took to the States, stage and he started singing. And he sings so beautiful. He sings so beautiful, this song about Madiba. And Madiba at that stage, I don't know if you remember, was critically ill in hospital after the Galstone uh, operation. That is, that is Jacob Zuma for you. Read the moment perfectly, realize that if he sings this song, no one will dare show the replacement sign. And I think, you know, that's a symbolic memory I've just had, but I think that for me explains it. He understands the ANC deeply. He understands the, the struggle deeply. He was there. He was by Madiba's side during the negotiations, during the Kudesa negotiations. When you see those pictures now of Madiba at the negotiations table, it's always flanked by Mbeki and Zuma. Um, I wish Madiba was still alive, that we could ask him what he saw in this man. You know, I know Ronnie Castro started speaking about it recently to say how important it was to have prominent Isizulu leaders in the ANC. But Zuma deeply understands the ANC. He knows the ANC. And as Minister Batabili Dlamini did us such a huge favor by reminding us that he knows where the small Nyana and sometimes big Nyana skeletons are buried. And I really do believe that Zuma, there's this thing, people in the ANC have told me, he's got files on us. He knows, he knows the secrets and he will unleash that when the time is right. Zuma has threatened to write books, um, you know, which, will, which might uh, dethrone us even further, yeah. But... I think he understands that culture, he understands that culture of, of respect for the, for the elder, uh, he respects the culture of seniority, of not speaking out against anyone, and that ultimately the cohesion of the ANC is more important than even the well-being of South Africa. Yet at the same time, we can't depict the ANC as a party without agency, because in that way, you almost excuse um, certain behavior. I mean, there is a kind of pushback and I think you, you, you write about that uh, in the book. It's, you want to comment on that? Well, well, really, I think we talk about state capture, but there's certainly party capture in, the, in, in play as well. You know, Jacob Zuma over the last 10 years has consolidated his power and influence in the, in the ANC like no other president has before him. Um, look at what Jacob Zuma survived over the last 18 months, starting with Nsantanene's firing, firing in December 2015, move forward to March 2016, the Nkanda judgment, August 2016 with the municipal elections with the worst showing that the ANC's ever had. Uh, Tulima Donsela's state of capture report in November last year. Um, the firing of Praveen Gordon. What has the ANC been able to do to try and rein in their president? Or to try and push their president in a different direction? Or to try and influence their president to take a different direction? They've been unable to do anything. Sir Ramaphosa uh, will probably be uh, judged very harshly by history um, about what he did or did not do to try and uh, put this president on a, on, on a different plane. So the ANC, um, you know, if we, we can argue that they might have been complicit in this, um, but they've been unable to do anything to try and rein in this president. He's, a, he's pretty much a law unto his own. And if you move on the sixth floor of Lutuli House, people talk with hushed tones and deference about this president. So 
so, so, so a point, a big moment for me personally was after Province Gordon's firing, uh, the following day, Gwede Mantashi was in your radio station talking to Tolani Gwala, and he was at a total loss for words saying, we, we never knew about this list, we weren't consulted. Uh, that same morning, Cyril Ramaphosa in Bloemfontein said, we disagree with this. The following days, William Kizzi said, we're going to speak to him about this. What happened on the Monday? They had to ask, they had to apologize to the president for speaking out publicly. So I think, if anything, the last 10 years events, and especially the last couple of years events, have shown us the impotence, certainly, of the top six of ANC. I'm just reflecting on a conversation. I flew to Cape Town on Friday, and I was sitting next to a gentleman whose name I didn't get, but he told me that he grew up in the Bruder Bond. Um, I don't know if they had a youth wing or I don't know. We're too young. Yeah. <laughs> Relax, darling. <laughs> no daggers directed at you. <laughs> Rainbow Nation. <laughs> and all that. Okay, so this gentleman ne, was a member. That's what he said to me. But later on, he'd gone to represent the Bruder Bond as a lawyer. He was a lawyer. And he tells me that that meeting that Zuma had, I can't remember when it was, where he met the Africana community. Do you remember it? There was AfriForum and everybody else. He went there rep representing, um, he says, the Bruder Bond. But anyway, they were there. And then he says that Zuma welcomed them and said every single person, he says there were 22 of them, every single one of you, you tell me how you feel. Tell me about the state of the nation and how you feel and what you think we're doing wrong. And they were all now ambushed because they thought he's the president. He's going to now set the agenda. And they spoke, ne? one after the other. And he said, when they finished, Zuma summarized every single thing, looked the person in the eye and said, so you, Mr. Van der Merwe, your issue is, have I understood you? You, Mr. Labaskahi, have I, I'm making these surnames up, by the way. I went, I went to Portugal, so I'm familiar with those surnames. He went one after the other, and he said by the end of it, they were all like, ah, what a charming man. But the point that he was making was, it is at our peril that we just dismiss him. It's our peril that we think he doesn't know what he's doing. And, and you're not, I like that you're not depicting a Zuma who is a dunderhead. You're not. And I must say, you're more gracious than I am in that regard, but I will ask it as a theme. Why is it important to take seriously even the giggles, even the go ask Mkabisi, I wasn't there, go ask Duduzani, because those have made me want to pull my hair out. But after reading your book, I kind of think there's a strategy to all of that. Look, I think there's not, you know, I get irked when people refer to his, um, his education, for example, because, you know, there was a very serious reasons for the time in which he grew up. He's, he didn't have parents, his father died at a very young age, he couldn't complete schooling. Um, and, and, you know, one should never underestimate Jacob Zuma, the strategist, the masterful strategist who understands people, who understands the ANC. Um, and really, there's a lot of anecdotes. I remember sitting in the Sheikh trial, listening to evidence being led about how Jacob Zuma was used by Shabir Sheikh to influence investors coming to South Africa um, to take on Sheikh as a BE partner. And that was the quid pro quo in the corruption dance that they did when Sheikh was covering Zuma's expenses and in exchange. And there, were this, there was always this description of an almost 
awkward, shy, uncomfortable Zuma having to enter these conversations by his capturers, where he now had to make the deal, seal the deal by selling uh, Sheikh to this uh, uh, investor. I remember vividly this one investor uh, who wanted to develop the point area in Durban. And, uh, you know, his, his description of this Umschlanga flat where Sheikh took them a bit seedy almost. You can see this in the Hollywood movie, you know, and Zuma steps in and he looks almost a bit anxious and he tells them, no, take Sheikh as your partner, you know. And similar description by Fakey Mentor, which we quote verbatim in our book, when she was flown up to Johannesburg to speak to Zuma, Zuma which she thought was about the, the Pebula Modular Reactor, another project the ANC did amazing and then completely wasted the money. And she thought she was going to speak to him. Picked up by some burly bodyguards at Oratambo Airport, driven to Saxon World to speak to Ajay Gupta, who offers her the position of the Minister of Public Works, uh, Public Enterprises, excuse me, and then tells her to please cancel SAA's uh, uh, flights to India because Jet Airways needs to come in. And then Jacob Zuma, as if out of a movie, emerging from another door and saying, Tombazana, don't worry, because she was freaking out like Faki does, you know. And, you know, and, and not taking responsibility. He's always like this mystical figure. He's just around there. So there's almost these two Jacob Zumas, you know. There's the charming, disarmingly charming person who can bry with Afrikaners and who can uh, go to, with Helen Zilla to nice now after the fires and speak to the people. And then there's this this horrible, captured, corrupt politician, you know, who's, uh, who's at the beck and call of the Gupta, Shabir Sheikh, and probably many others. It's, uh, can I just add to that? It's important, really, because it shows the deviousness of a man. Look, w when you interview President Jacob Zuma in his office, you know, he guffaws at himself. He's self-deprecating. He doesn't mind laughing at himself. When he, when he welcomes you in his office, he gives you a back slap and almost a hug saying, let's have a chat. What do you want to talk about? You know, if you're a woman, you get a kiss. Well, <laughs> hopefully not much more. But, but, but that's the way he is. He's got, a, he's got an engaging personality. And once you sit with a person across the table, you know, he, 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 it changes the dynamics and he manipulates the situation. So he manipulates people, he manipulates situations. And I think it's important because it shows how devious the man can be. And he's used that devious approach to a number of people, a number of deals, uh, to his own party and to his own cabinet. All right, so we don't have time to go through every single case study. I won't bore you with ESCOM and Trillion and all of that because it's all in the news. But I do think that there is one that is underreported, and I was delighted when I saw it in your book. And that is the Danel VR Laser Asia. I don't want to spoil... Um, the fun for the reader, but I think it is quite important to talk about why that was a, a, an asset, as it were, worth appropriating, and what exactly happened uh, with the uh, Danelle matter. I mean, you look at uh, a, a, a Mansa, who was the what, what was the, the chairperson of the board of Danelle. I mean, he was at some point. That's how crass it was. He was sending his municipal bills to the Guptas. And this is not fabrication. I think it is in the Gupta email. So I'm deliberately choosing this example because very few people are talking about Danelle and how that was captured. And that is the story of Lynn Brown, which is really coming out now. And I'm so glad that it's finally coming out because I do think she has escaped a lot of the censure that's come the way of other ministers. 
look what happened at the Nile is very simple. The Nile was started in the ending years of apartheid to commercialize uh, the government's capability to manufacture um, armaments. Um, obviously, the apartheid state had sanctions, so they had to manufacture their own armaments and couldn't import these when they couldn't buy sanctions, of course. But the Nile was then started to commercialize and selling our own things, um, our own helicopters and, 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 and machinery we were uh, manufacturing. Um, the Gupta saw this as a great opportunity, brought in VR laser that was owned by Salim Issa, a business partner of the Zuma, uh, of, of, of uh, the Guptas, Dudizani Zuma and Tony Gupta. Okay, they are brought in. They start this lovely relationship with VR laser Asia to now sell state intellectual property to other countries and other companies overseas. Dan Manchak comes out of nowhere, having been disbarred as a lawyer, having been scrapped from the register of lawyers having been Faith Mutambi's legal advisor, to become the chairperson of the now, being appointed by Lynn Brown. Thank you, Minister Brown. That is her legacy. So yes, it is just another example of an SOE that was captured in that scheme that we describe in the book, where President Zuma appoints a minister, the minister appoints tainted board members, the, the board members make these deals happen. Well, it's, uh, I just want to add to that. I think, I think when you research a book like this, I think everyone is deluged every, every day by, by, by allegations of state capture. We've got the parliamentary inquiry uh, at the moment into ESCOM. And, and, and sometimes we, we get numbed by what happens. But I think it's important to realize and it's important to understand the brazen way in which they've gone about uh, uh, capturing the state and the brazen way in which President Jacob Zuma has repurposed the state, repurposed the ANC, um, and ensured that a project um, that started in 2009 is now seriously coming to fruition. All right, um, I will have a few more questions for you towards the end, but it always happens at book launches, isn't it, that the moderator asks all the questions, and by the time it's your chance, I've got five minutes for you, and it's time to wrap up. So I'm going to be very generous but strict. We're not going to start with the preamble, an introduction, a speech. You're just going to get the mic, tell us who you are, and then ask your question or make your comment. Uh, the reason for that is because we want to accommodate as many of you as we possibly can. So let's go for it. Who wants to start and where are you? Thank you very much. My name is Nchimkulu Mashia from Centurion. The, the chapter, I think it's part five, where you say, we the people, where you talk about uh, civil society organizations. I think more of a comment on, on us as ordinary people. What, what kind of role in this present day activism? I mean, there's organizations like Outer, uh, Right to Know, and so on and so forth. The, all in my view is in our court as individuals to really play a prominent role, not in the political activism some of us were involved in back in the 80s, but currently there's a new way of doing activism through the civil society. We the people. If I can just quickly respond to that, and I'm so glad you brought it up, sir, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm surprised that you didn't bring it up really, is that the fighting back part of our book is important. And I really, Peter and I really felt strong about bringing that theme in because I do think South Africans has woken up and are fighting back in their ways through marches like uh, the, the march we had in April after Province uh, Gordon's firing, 
through these a plethora of civil society organizations that are going to court, that are marching. So I think it's fantastic. And, and just a, a, another comment. Look, the, one of the big moments of the last couple of years was that magnificent judgment by Chief Justice Mokhweng Mokhweng, a chief justice that we berated in the media when he was about to be appointed. We thought he might be a lackey of the president. He's anything but. You know, he's guarded the independence of the judiciary. And the judgment on that day in March, I think it was the 30th, 30th of March, was an important landmark because he, 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 he ensconced the independence of the judiciary and he made sure and he, he, he gave a scathing judgment of the function of the executive and the function of the president. So I, I get very tired when people say we're about to become a failed state or we're going to go the way of Zimbabwe. We're far away from Zimbabwe. We've got serious issues, yes. Uh, our institutions have been tested. The limits of our constitutional democracy have been tested. But we're holding up, you know, and we've survived worse than this guy. Sorry, if I can just add as part of the solution, now I'm wearing my own activist hat and not that of a, of a moderator. You know, you've got to support investigative journalism. You've got to support social justice institutions. With your money, with your expertise right now, that case of the little boy who drowned in shit, basically. That's what happened. Pit toilet, he was drowning with his hand up probably asking for help. There's an advocate dealing with that case. If you are an advocate and you see a case like that, by lending your expertise, you are building civil society. If you are a teacher, if you are a doctor, whatever it is that you do in your private, you don't have to belong to an organization. But if you don't have those expertise with your money, when you support institutions like Section 27, Amabungani, what you're doing is you are paying for credible content that has been investigated. And credible content is expensive, right? It is expensive, it has to be paid for. You have to hire the best, the most senior journalists so that these people don't leave journalism. Because if they do, then fake news prospers and we all poorer for it. So th that's another way of fighting back, sorry. Hi, I'm Jo Ann and a fellow activist and gentleman. Thank you very much for your book and to everybody else that's sort of highlighting everything that's happening in the country. My question is, is where do we go from here? Because what Jacob Zuma has achieved in a short time of 10 years, um, how do we stop the rot from spreading? How do we stop it from anything else that's coming in? Because the scary factor is whoever comes in, if it's Glamini, Zuma, whoever it is, where and how do we hold them accountable to say, to here, tipping point, and no more? Because we need to take this country forward, and we need to do everything that's right from here on out. And I want to know how, in God's name, do we get that right if the rot is sitting in our politics? So I can give you three practical ways you can change and stop the rot. Firstly, if you are a member of the ANC, make sure you elect the right president in December. Secondly, what Echoing what Radius just said, look at our book, read our book, and support those civil society institutions. They need your money and your assistance. Outer South Cove, just stop the nuclear deal um, in, in the Western Cape High Court. I don't know if people appreciate the enormity of that judgment and the fact that those uh, religious leaders went to the Western Cape High Court to stop the deal. So support those organizations. There's a lot of them. There's ALTA, there's Freedom Under Law, there's Section 27, Equal Education, they're all named in our book. And lastly, there's an election in 20, 2019. 
the people of Tsane, Johannesburg, and Nelson Mandela Bay last year already voted differently than before. It was a massive historic moment, which again I think is underplayed because we have so much news. But the fact that the ANC lost Johannesburg, specifically last year, was a massive blow and a big sign to the ANC that they are busy losing key constituencies and places in South Africa. And don't get tired. I mean, people sometimes get tired of all the bad news that we get. Stay involved, stay abreast of what's happening, uh, mobilize in your community. And Adrian's right, go and vote next year. That's the most important democratic weapon that you've got. Just a question, obviously a book can only be so big, it could be an encyclopedia or not. We tend to only hear about the things that come to light and that the Guptas and Zuma have made money off. If you scratch deeper, are there a lot more of the failed ideas? Because it doesn't cost them anything of the ideas. You take someone else's ideas, you open a 150-man company, you shove some directors in. If you make money, you make money. Are we, are we not hearing all of the things yet? Have you scratched a little bit and found the easy stuff? Is there harder stuff out there? Waterboard, axes, runways, uh, nuclear isotopes? I don't know. I think there's much more. That's a short answer to your question. I think that what we know at this stage about state capture, which is largely based on one leak of hundreds and thousands of emails, but one leak by one whistleblower, is probably about 10 to 20% of what, what happened really. I think all of this will come out in the next few years. And if the right things happen towards the end of this year, if there are judicial commissioners of inquiry, if there is a functioning and capable Hawks and prosecuting um, authority again, we will have trials running for many years, which will keep a lot of detectives and prosecutors busy for many years to come. Um, I think you are completely right. Um, we are trying our best. And if there's anyone with information, documents, if you have something, please speak to me afterwards. We have time for two more questions. I've never, I haven't gotten to this side yet. Is there anybody here with a question? Okay. Who else has a question? I know you do. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to the back here. Please pass this all the way over. Hi, good evening. I'm Rory. Um, thanks for, for writing the book. I'll buy one uh, right now. Uh, my question is rather is one about balance of power. Sorry, balance of power. In the sort of the relationship between Sheikh and, the, and, the, and Zuma and the Guptas and the Zuma, is it a, a power flow from uh, external sources? So is it Sheikh influencing Zuma and then changing things? Was it Zuma first and Sheikh was the was a key? Are the Guptas key? Are they the mastermind? What, what's your opinion on that? Look, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial relationship, but, 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 but let's start with the shakes. Uh, I mean, we know Jacob Zuma has a couple of flaws in his personal makeup. The, the biggest flaw was the fact that he, didn't, he simply didn't know how to work with money. So he was very easily influenced from the very beginning by the shakes. Uh, they were his benefactors, and he, 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 he very heavily relied on his relationship with them. Um, when, when, when that relationship broke down, you know, there were other families ready to step in. We write about the sheikhs, but let me tell you, there's a couple of other families involved as well, um, and, 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 and we know about the Guptas, but there's a couple of other families in that same orbit which we haven't yet sc started scratching the surface. So, so he's a compromised person, he's a compromised president, as we well know. Um, but it was a relationship that he needed with the Guptas, and they needed him as well. 
the big thing with the Guptas was that they came to this country, they saw opportunities, they saw opportunities to enrich themselves, those around them. Zuma saw an opportunity to safeguard himself, to enrich himself, and to enrich those around him. So it was a mutually beneficial relationship. I think there's still another book left to be written about who was actually pulling the strings. Uh, but there's no doubt that Jacob Zuma went into this with his eyes open, knowing what the repercussions were, knowing what is in it for him, um, and taking full advantage of the relationship and the opportunities uh, that the Guptas presented. And they, in turn, um, saw the relationship and saw the opportunities that a head of state might give them. Um, you know, I, I think another thing that we don't fully realize is the influence that a head of state has. And, and, and that's another theme that we need to talk about, the influence um, that he had over cabinet, the influence that he had over the ANC. So, so it, it, he, he was the gatekeeper and uh, he opened the gate for a number of families. Just to quickly add on to that, he was the great enabler. That's the way we put it in the book. It is in any government, in any country in the world, there's rogues and criminals wandering around politicians, trying to bribe them, trying to get them in their pockets. We saw it with the Celebi trial, we're seeing it now again with Adriano Mazzotti, who's trying to buy in Kosazana at Lamini Zuma. It's up to the president to say no, and to say, I'm not going to get this, I'm not going there. We will uh, have one more question from Reedy. Uh, then we will hear a few remarks from the CEO of Jonathan Ball Publishers, Eugene. Please stay in your seats until Eugene is done speaking. And then we will have a book signing. The book signing queue will start at the signing table here and go back toward the social kitchen. So you're welcome to enter the bookshop on this side to buy your book. But to get it signed, you have to go to the back of the queue, which is going to back toward the social kitchen. Now, Reedy, your final question. Thank you. Okay, so the first question that I have is, should we in the media take responsibility for not doing enough to locate state capture within social justice? For example, beyond the appeal of the scandal, 50 billion rand, Duduzani Zuma this, Fakey Mento says this. I, I, I know we're doing it, but perhaps not enough. Where we've been able to translate, to take state capture and demonstrate to what extent it impacts the woman in Lusikisiki, to explain why this section of our population is drowning in pit toilets, why this section doesn't have electricity. In other words, are we guilty of being seduced by the whole grotesque feeding off our fiscus, but also inadvertently forgetting the people who are most affected by state capture? Should we challenge our editorial angles? Yes, we should. Um, but the numbers are so big, really, isn't it? I mean, 50 billion rand here, 30 billion rand there, 100 billion perhaps uh, ferried offshore, 600 billion uh, sent to Dubai. You know, the numbers are immense. Um, and I think Tulima Doncela uh, lit the way in her report, uh, State of Capture, last year, where she said some of the money that was used for Nkandla was designated for housing projects in the East Rand, Dolomite restoration projects in the Far Triangle. So yes, we should, because state capture affects every single one of us. It's going to affect us every single one of us this year. This book costs, I don't know how much now, but next year it will cost 20, 30% more. Uh, water's gonna cost more. Electricity, look, look what's happening with ESCOM at the moment. ESCOM is on the verge of collapse. What's that gonna do to industry? What's that gonna do to, to, uh, to the lower middle class, to the people that are struggling to break into the middle class? So yes, we should try and translate and, 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 and uh, convert that into how it touches normal people. A practical example, we can fund free higher education with the money that SARS is not able to raise because of the brokenness of SARS. Okay, and then the last one. 
Now, when you're a talk show host, you ask questions, even though they're not questions that you would ask. You're representing a view. And you'll thank me for this, because I know you are on social media. You will face this if you haven't done so already. You're probably going to get a tweet that, what are two white men doing writing about state capture? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? What are two white Afrikaans men doing bringing the president down when there's so much corporate uh, looting and all of that? It's going to come. You know it's going to come. So I'm asking it so it's that come. it's out. It's come already, right? <laughs> we can the, feel it. The, yeah, cover, can. the cover was out for an hour on Twitter when we had uh, courtesy of Andile and Kitama and BLF I had a Photoshop cover that said enemy of the white people. Yeah. Um, how Jacob Zuma fought back against whites. No, really, you have to expect that. Um, you have to expect Does it bother that. you? I mean, do you care? Do you feel sometimes there's stories that you have to diminish because you're, you're worried that you'll be accused of racism or a singular focus on black leaders? I mean, how do you make sense of it as a white Afrikaans journalist? Look, really, in this country, you can't get away from race and you can't get away from our history, but, but it shouldn't bother us. You know, we're journalists that were very privileged for more than 10 years to have front row seats to history. So let's, let's just boil it down to the fact that we were lucky enough to interact with the president and those around him and the governing party for 10 years. And it's a fantastical tale. It's, 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 it's part of our history. We, we, uh, we, we dedicate the book to our sons, our boys, and, you know, we've got a future here and, and, and we want to tell the story. I think they're just too polite to really say what they want to say. I think what they're saying is they don't give a shit what you call them as long as they're pursuing the truth, right? <laughs>